Hi everyone, I'm Miles. Now, whenever we preach HTBB, we try to make it practical and applicable to give you tools to live out your Christian life in the world and make a difference. But it's really important to remember that being a Christian is not primarily about following a set of principles. It's about following and worshiping a person, Jesus Christ. We mustn't take our eyes off him, the author and perfecter of faith. You know, it can be possible to be in Christ, to be living for Jesus, but to begin to lose our amazement and awe of Jesus. To forget just how utterly unique and glorious and holy and inspiring he is. So our priority is to continue to look upon him in amazement, to grow in love for Jesus. And when we do that, will then find that kind of all the other aspects of being a Christian will begin to fall into place. So today we're going to look at a passage where Jesus reveals who he is. When three of his disciples get a glimpse of the awe-inspiring reality of Jesus as the glorious son of God. And the reading is taken from Mark's gospel. Uh, early church tradition believes that Mark was the traveling companion of Peter who listened to Peter preaching to the crowds and then later wrote it down in his gospel account. Church tradition also says that the gospel writer Mark is John Mark, the traveling companion of Paul and Barnabas, actually the cousin of Barnabas, who accompanied them on their first mission trip in Acts 13. And the oldest denomination in the world, the Coptic Orthodox Church, they believed that Mark eventually went to Alexandria in Egypt and started the first ever church there that grew into the Coptic Orthodox Church of today. So these words that I will read to you are God-inspired and written down by an amazing follower of Jesus. And we're going to look together at Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. Let me read it for you. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Uh, let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished just as it is written about him. Amen. So what does this amazing passage of scripture tell us about Jesus? Firstly, it says that Jesus confronts evil on its own ground. What do I mean? 
Well, Jesus chooses to reveal himself in all his glory on a mountain, but not just any mountain. Verse two says that after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain. In Greek, that is horos hupsalos, a mountain high. And this high mountain was almost certainly Mount Hermon. At the end of Mark chapter eight, just before this event, Jesus and the disciples had been in the town of Caesarea Philippi, which is at the base of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is indeed a mountain high. It's the highest mountain in the whole of Israel, about 2,800 meters high. In Hebrew, the word Hermon means sacred, but, but the root is also related to the Arabic word haram, forbidden. And it may well have been that Mount Hermon was forbidden for the Jews because it was the center for Baal worship at the time. Today, the center of Baal worship is Tottenham Hotspur. But back then, Baal was the Canaanite god of the weather, the storm god, the one who dictated fertility, the harvest. And throughout Israel's history, Baal had competed for their attention and worship. Archaeologists have actually uh, uncovered over 20 shrines to Baal on the slopes of Mount Hermon and caves with pagan carvings of Baal in it. The ancient Ugaritic texts of Canaan also claim that Mount Hermon was the palace of Baal here on earth. It was literally a high place of excess for the pagans. Ancient Jewish myths also claim that Mount Hermon was the gateway through which the fallen angels had come, who then produced the Nephilim, the race of giants that they believe who lived there. And when St. Jerome first translated the Bible into Latin, he translated the word Hermon as anathema. So in other words, Jesus brings his disciples to the haunt of demons and the palace of Baal to show precisely who he is six days before in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Matthew's gospel account tells us that Jesus had stood outside a temple, the Roman temple to the god Pan. Pan was originally a Greek god that the Romans had adopted and uh, often uh, depicted as half man, half goat, a satyr or a fawn. And he was always playing the Pan pipes. He was the god of chaos and mischief, from which we get our word panic. And the temple there to Pan in Caesarea Philippi was a huge cave. And the mouth of the cave was known locally as the gates of hell. And it was outside that cave, that temple, that Jesus had stood there and declared himself Messiah and made the bold claim, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus was audacious. And six days later, here he is standing on Mount Hermon, making a similar declaration and gesture. Yet this time it's God himself and the great Old Testament figures of Moses and Elijah who declare who he is. Think about it. Jesus chooses the gateway for evil spirits, the lair of wicked giants, the mountain saturated in demon shrines, to show that he is, in fact, Lord. On this place that existed to humiliate Israel and, and to prevent her, challenge her from worshipping their true God, Jesus stands and he humbles all other spiritual powers. If you keep reading in 
Mark 9, when he comes down the mountain, the very next thing he does, almost to demonstrate it, is he sets the boy free who's been gripped by a demon. See, here's the thing. Whatever you face right now in your life, no evil power is too powerful for Jesus. He stands above it. And whatever you've done or whatever has been done to you, whatever you're going through right now, no matter how dark, the mighty Jesus stands on the mountain of your life and declares himself as Lord over you and over your future. And he sets you and me free. He sets you free. You know, just recently I was chatting to a guy called Henry. He lives in another country in this region. And he told me a bit about his story. He was an atheist. Someone invited him and his wife on Alpha. He didn't want to go, but his wife was going. So he thought, I better go along. But when he got there and started to go through the Alpha course, he thought, wow, these people are really nice. And they listened to his questions and, and listened to what he had to say. And then it was on the Holy Spirit day that finally Henry put his faith in Jesus. So did his wife. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said at that point, God revealed to him just how caught up in life he was and began to set him free. Firstly, he was having an affair at the time. So he said, I finished that and told my wife. They were then reconciled. He and his wife were unable to conceive, so they began to pray about it. And they now have two children. He then shared the good news with his father. And he came to faith and got baptized. And then Henry began to serve at their local church. They started going to and helping run Alpha. He said, we saw so many people come to faith in Jesus and set free. He said, we've had to plant two churches as a result. Jesus set Henry free. Jesus said, didn't he? If the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So whatever your past, whatever your present, Jesus can stand on the mount of your life as Lord and Savior and set you free right now. The second thing this passage shows us is that Jesus revealed his true nature. The turning point in Mark's gospel is actually just before this in Mark chapter eight, with Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And then straight away here in chapter nine, Peter, James and John get an unveiling of who Jesus is, confirming Peter's confession as true. And after that, from this transfiguration onwards, the whole of Mark's gospel accelerates the story towards the cross. It becomes a passion narrative. And we get a glimpse here in Mark 9 of who it is precisely who will go and die for us on the cross. In verse 2, it says of Jesus that he was transfigured before them. The word here is metamorpho, from which we get our word metamorphosis, meaning to change form or experience transformation transformation and be changed. Now, Jesus didn't change form, but he did unveil something of his nature, momentarily revealing his infinite glory. Think of it like this. It's a bit like the Superman movies, right? We, the viewers, get to see that Clark Kent, the mild-mannered reporter, is actually Superman. And here, as we read through this account, we see that Jesus, the mild-mannered carpenter from Nazareth is also the high king of heaven. Peter, James, and John, they'd been with Jesus up to this point for about two and a half years. They'd known him as woodworker, teacher, 
prophet, preacher, even miracle worker, but they'd never seen him like this before. On Mount Hermon, these three disciples, along with us, get a a glimpse of what the angels see, the infinite glory of Jesus. Now, Now think about it. It's sort of inconsistent for us not each day not to have some time to spend with Jesus, and yet for us to claim that we want to spend all of eternity with God. So let the glory of the transfiguration compel you and me to spend some time each day beholding the infinite glory of Jesus. And this glory, this is why he was blazing white. In verse three, it says, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Now, this sounds a bit like a detergent commercial, right? But what Mark is trying to do is is use words to to describe the indescribable. It's interesting that even today, Arabs sometimes call Mount Hermon the snowy mountain, because for about a third of the year, it's covered in snow, which at spring then melts and feeds into the Sea of Galilee. And, you know, I I wonder whether, did Jesus take the three disciples up Mount Hermon whilst there was snow on it? And when he was transfigured, did he shine so pure and brilliantly white that he even made the snow look grubby? Well, we don't know. But either way, we can read these words today and in our mind's eye, look upon the glory and purity of Jesus. Do you know, sometimes we do things, don't we, that make us feel a bit grubby, maybe even on the inside. But the amazing truth is this, that when we put our faith in Jesus, accepting his sacrifice on the cross for us, then God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, right now, he looks upon you and he sees you shining bright, whiter than anything could be bleached because of what Jesus has done for us. It was L'Oreal who said, because you're worth it. But really, it's the cross of Jesus that shows you that you are worth it. He sees you pure, holy, dazzling white right now. Receive that truth today. The third thing this passage shows us is that Jesus is honored by the champions of the Old Testament. In verse 4, it says this, And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Moses represents the law, Elijah the prophets. And Jesus, of course, is is the one who fulfills the law and the prophets, the one whom the whole of scripture points us towards. And in scripture, and in particular, the book of Malachi, chapters three and four, we read how the people of God anticipated that Elijah would return to prepare the way for the eventual coming of God's king on earth. And Jesus hints to his disciples as they come down the mountain that Elijah had come. In fact, Mark has already revealed this to us in Mark chapter one, saying that this is fulfilled in the coming of John the Baptist. And Jesus is now the messianic king who has come. And this scene on Mount Hermon is also reminiscent of the scene on Mount Sinai when in the cloud of his presence, God had given Moses the law by which the Jews then 
began to try and live by it whilst they're still in the wilderness. And every year they, they had this festival called the Feast of Tabernacles, whereby the people would remember this. They, they would build makeshift shelters out of branches and they'd sit in them for the week to remind themselves of how God had provided for their forefathers whilst they were in the wilderness, given them the law and brought them through the wilderness. And it's interesting that here on Mount Hermon, when Peter sees the transfiguration, he doesn't know what to do. And his immediate reaction is to suggest that he makes tabernacles, skinas is the word, and that they should stay in them. But Jesus, Jesus essentially says to him, no, no, Peter, it's time to move on. It's as if he's saying, I am the one who leads the people out of the wilderness of sin and death into the promised land of freedom and eternal life. You can know that freedom and life today. And just before the transfiguration, at the end of Mark 8, Jesus had taught his disciples that he would be killed and then rise again. And then Mark 9 begins with the words, after six days, Jesus took them up the mountain. In Exodus 24, it was after God's presence had been on Mount Sinai for six days that God then confirmed his covenant with Moses from within the cloud. And here, after six days, Jesus is confirmed on Mount Hermon by the voice from within the cloud as the one who fulfills the covenant and ushers in a new covenant, which would be sealed by his blood on the cross. Jesus is the one who begins the second exodus from death to life. And what's more, Moses and Elijah, yeah, they're the two greatest champions of the Old Testament. And there they were on Mount Hermon, giving honor to Jesus. So I want to ask a question. Do you, do, do we honor Jesus? Do, do we honor him with our lives? Do you honor him with your speech, with your actions? Because it's wise to do so. 1 Samuel 2 verse 30 says, well, God says, I will honor those who honor me. So honor Jesus today and God will honor you. Fourthly, we see in this passage that Jesus was affirmed by God the Father. Verse 7 says this. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Now, it's one thing to be honored by Moses and Elijah. It's something else to be affirmed by God himself. The cloud in the Bible is a motif, a symbol for God's presence. God was present in the cloud on Mount Sinai when Moses was given the law. God then led the people in a cloud in the wilderness. But most importantly, it was the cloud of God that descended on the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, the temple, showing God's presence. But if you continue the Old Testament story, due to the repeated sin of the people, eventually the Babylonians invade and the Ark was lost. The cloud of God's presence, his Shekinah glory was gone. The word there, Ichabod, it, it had departed. Oh, unthinkable. God's presence had left. And the Jews believed 
that the cloud of God's presence would only return when the long-awaited Messiah came. And here in Mark 9, the cloud returns. And the voice of God speaks from within it. And the father at this point declares and repeats the words he'd spoken over Jesus at his baptism in Mark chapter one, declaring Jesus's identity as the son of God and the perfect love of the father for him. God says, this is my son whom I love. You know, the disciples, they'd often heard Jesus speak of God as father, but now they hear the father call him his beloved son. Just six days before, Jesus had stood outside that temple to Pan in Caesarea Philippi, and he'd said to his disciples, who do people say I am? And then he looked at them and said, and who do you say I am? Now here on the mountain, God answers the question. You know, when we put our faith in Jesus, the amazing thing is we are adopted by God the Father into his family. We become sons and daughters of God. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption. And as Paul writes in Romans 8.15, by that spirit, we cry, Abba, Father, to the Lord. So my question is this. Do you know God as your father? As your father in heaven? Years ago, when I was about 19, um, the church I was at um, sent a team on mission to uh, another town uh, further north. And I signed up and I, and I went as part of the team. And on that team, we were sort of paired up with a buddy. And I was paired up with an older guy called Chris. Actually, he was a huge guy. And during that week, we got to know each other a bit and shared our stories. Mine took about 30 seconds. It wasn't very interesting, but his life story was mind-blowing. Turns out Chris had spent much of his life as a gangster. He was the right-hand man to two of England's most notorious and infamous criminals who have ever, ever existed, the Cray brothers. The Cray brothers were the sort of gangster kingpins of the time based in East London. Everyone was terrified of the Cray brothers. And Chris was their hatchet man. Now, there was a point whereby the Cray brothers decided they wanted to eliminate a rival gang leader called Jack the Hat. This is totally true. Uh, they all had ridiculous names. Anyway, they got rid of Jack the Hat and they asked Chris to dispose of the body, which he'd done. Eventually, he got caught and sentenced to jail. And Chris said back then he was a very violent man and they moved him from cell to cell. And he said this one day they... They put him in a new cell and he said, I just did what normally happened. I came into this huge rage and I started to trash the cell. He said, I smashed uh, the chair. I overturned the bed. And he said, to my surprise, under the bed was a box full of books. He said, I just went through the box. And I started to throw the books all around the cell. He said, then I got to the very last book in the box. And he said, I went to throw it. And for some reason, he said, I just couldn't let go of this book. He said, I looked and saw it was the Bible. He said, at that point, a sort of peace started to come into the room, the cell. And he opened it and he began to read about Jesus. And there in prison, 
We came to faith in Christ. And God completely changed him as a person. And Chris said something very interesting to me. He said, in a prison, there's this sort of frenzy, this activity that happens in the lead up to Mother's Day. Yeah, a bit like today is Mother's Day, right? He said, in a prison, even the most hardened criminals, as it approaches Mother's Day, are like, oh no, I've got to get a card. I've got to write a Mother's Day card for my mum. How do I order mum flowers? Oh, do you think she'll come and visit me? Am I going to see mum next weekend? He said, it's so interesting. But he said, that does not happen on Father's Day. He said, in a prison, you wouldn't even know it's Father's Day. Nobody's trying to write a card on Father's Day. Nobody is longing to see and visit, have their father visit. He said, most criminals, they don't even know who their father is. And if they do, they never want to see him again. The point is this. Don't underestimate the importance of knowing the love of a father. Now, I don't know your story. Maybe you don't know your father, your earthly father. Maybe you do. Maybe he's amazing. Maybe you lost him. Or, or, or maybe you do know your father and he wasn't a great father. Whatever the case, the fact is this. Ultimately, we're all in the same position. We all have our perfect father in heaven, God himself. And when we turn to Christ, God Almighty, the creator of all things, looks at you right now and says, that's my son, that's my daughter, whom I love. And then as Paul tells us in Romans 5.5, God then pours his perfect love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. When you know God Almighty as your father, then the course, the trajectory of your life will change for the good. And then finally, we see in this passage that from this point onwards, Jesus begins a journey from the Mount of Transfiguration to the Mount of Crucifixion. Now, given who Jesus is, who he's revealed himself to be, his plan then to die on the cross for you and for me, for all of humanity, well, it's as shocking as it is amazing. As Jesus comes down the mountain, he has this really intriguing conversation with Peter, James, and John that they, they don't quite understand what he's going on about. In verse 9 and 10, we read this. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And then just a, a little bit further on in Mark 9, verse 31, Jesus again says to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And then the next verse, verse 32, it says, but they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Why didn't the disciples understand what Jesus was saying? Well, in Jewish thought at the time, they believed that the resurrection of the dead would happen to all at the end of time. 
But the idea that one person would be resurrected ahead of all the others, this was completely new to them. They didn't understand what Jesus was telling them of what St. Paul would later declare, that through his resurrection, Jesus would be the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And what's more, the the disciples had no concept that the long-awaited Messiah would, yes, be the one to restore Israel, and yes, in fact, be the one to restore all of humankind, but they didn't realize that the Messiah would do it through suffering on the cross, through weakness. What Mark is doing here is taking two Old Testament ideas and fusing them together with mind-blowing eternal significance. He's combining the idea of the Son of Man, a messianic term from Daniel 7, with the notion of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and merging them together, saying both are fulfilled in Jesus. The transfiguration reveals that, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, he is the Messiah, but he's also the one prepared to suffer, to die and rise again to save us and restore us. Wow, may we never grow too familiar with this awe-inspiring sacrificial act of love by Jesus. You see, on Mount Hermon, Jesus is revealed as the Son of God, but he comes down the mountain and describes himself as the son of man. On the Mount of Golgotha, the Mount of Crucifixion, he'll be the representative of humanity, dying for the sins of humankind. Here on Mount Hermon, God came down in a cloud. There on Golgotha, Jesus would cry out alone. Here on Hermon, two of Israel's heroes are his witnesses. There on Golgotha, two of Israel's criminals. Here he's clothed in white. There he'll be clothed in the sins of the world. Here the disciples sort of shield themselves from his blazing glory. There they'll run in horror into hiding. See, only God could pay for the sins of humanity, but only man should actually pay for them. So Jesus, the son of God, becomes the son of man to bear the punishment for you and me. Amazing. Jesus is transfigured, and then on Golgotha, he's transfixed so that we can be transfigured, be seen by the Father in Christ, glorious, pure, unholy, and righteous. We who are by sin disfigured are by grace transfigured. And when we grasp this and what this Savior has done for us, we will be forever changed. Let's pray right now. Why don't you, wherever you are, just put your hands out to say, Lord, I want to receive all that you have for me right now. And we just pray this prayer. Pray it in your heart. Just pray, come, Holy Spirit, fill me right here and right now. 